Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. You know, I think I think one of the most important things in life that we all have to eventually learn and grapple with is that fear is the mind on a liver. I think that that's an important thing. Or maybe I, I think I should probably rephrase that too. Being spooked is the cognition on a liver. I think that's the least yeah. copyright infringing we can get. Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, how, how are you feeling? Are you you well rested? Are you excited about um, you excited about today's episode? I mean, honestly, it feels it feels like some kind of spherical drill just cored out my brain. But yeah. hey, uh, I'm going to do what I can today. That's how you know you're ready to make a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Have you have you been have you been subjected to the to the mind boring silver orb? Welcome to podcast. You know the the silver orb floats down towards you. The drill takes out a, a, an important part of your brain, and then like a sure SM seventy eight just appears in front of you. <laughs> I believe that's in the sequel to this film. <laughs> yes, yeah, that is the that is that is Phantasm two the podcastening. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, like, I, I did go visit my two favorite psychic witches today, uh, and they made me they made me take uh, a test of my essential humanity that is in no way related to the Dune series of books and films. Yeah, uh, it's a complete coincidence that it's just almost identical, but I'm sure it totally falls within fair use. <laughs> oh, dear. Listeners, we've... we've traveled through dimensions we have crossed interplanar rifts and we've also covered most of the major horror movie franchises out there we've done our friday the 13th our nightmare on elm streets our halloweens uh and you know now now we're working our way towards what i feel confident in saying the better horror movie franchises uh really <laughs> Okay, yeah, let, why not? Let's go with it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not into those mainstream titles. Uh, we're talking about Phantasm. We're talking about... What What more do you want from me? T- I was going to try and come up with a bit, but there's no bit here. We're talking about... It's, it's 1979's Phantasm. We are, as always, on the cutting edge of horror movie discourse. I am your host, John, joined, as always, by Ash. How are you doing today? Uh, doing great. Doing, doing, I'm doing, I'm doing good. I'm currently recording in the basement of a mortuary. Um, I believe bad things are happening in this basement. And I think the first thing I need to do in my investigation is a five minute unbroken establishing shot of a light that I'll turn on a bit later. Uh, absolutely. I think that's how how about you? I, I mean, I'm good. I keep having, um, weird dreams about a red planet um populated entirely by uh three foot high murderous slave labor um and i think it's time to salt some union organization in that group oh when we say third worldism we mean the phantom red planet from phantasm yeah the the phantasm red planet is going to be red in more ways than one (laughs) 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 
yeah, we're we're talking about Phantasm. We're gonna have a we get it's gonna be a fun episode. Um, and I am excited and slightly nervous, um, to listen to you, my dear friend, explain what the pioneering, uh, 1979 American sci-fi horror movie Phantasm is about. When you die, what will become of your corpse, and how can you be certain of it? We can skip questions of the afterlife and jump right to some material metaphysics, the dream logic of corpses. From the early formations of capitalism to today, the business of body snatching has always been booming. Victorian grave robbers and body snatchers stole corpses fresh from the crypt for medical experiments, while their colonial counterparts were busy grave robbing in Egypt for mummy parties. Fast forward a fistful of decades later, and the fate of our corpses has somehow gotten worse, albeit behind closed doors. Today the corpse trade operates in a liminal space between being both illicit and perfectly above board in capital sense of those terms. A body donated to science is, in fact, given up to corpse brokers who sell or even lease body parts to any buyer. Even in death, our bodies are subdivided and leased to anyone with enough cash and a veil of legitimacy. So too go the bodies in Phantasm. The tall man may be recruiting a zombie slave army for unknown alien masters, but our off-screen dead suffer no greater or lesser a fate. Coscarelli stated that the dream logic of the film was the result of revising the script throughout production and editing the final cut over the course of a year. A mishap of art, sure, but an incisive depiction of our own fate. From smaller crematoriums to the Harvard Medical School, our corpses are just fuel for someone else's fiscal fire. There are few advocates for the dead under capital. Our living flesh is so far removed from our own agencies that our deceased flesh is a foregone conclusion. Corpse brokers prey on low-income communities, those who can't afford the fineries of a traditional burial or cremation, the tall man lives in the ledger books of every surreptitiously sold human body. Phantasm is lost within its own dream logic. Characters appear and vanish, cuts happen at strange moments, the pacing is entirely out of the hands of the agencies which should control it. What is tragic, I fear, is that we understand just as equally how this happens to art as it does to our lives. For-profit incentives and material imbalances of power enable the tall man's grave robbing, just as it does that of Harvard Medical. The dream logic of corpses runs against the grain of capitalism's stupor. The constant churn of our bodies is broken only when those very bodies pierce the graven soil of the status quo. If this doesn't scare you, you're already dead. Join us as we discuss Phantasm. Ooh, yes, indeed. We are going to be talking about politics of death. Let us begin, as we always must by entering the formalism zone, zone, zone. Spooky synth music goes here. The formalism zone. <laughs> okay, okay, let's let's jump ahead of our notes then and get right into that. Let's talk about the fact that this movie has one of the best scores I have ever heard. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. We don't, we, we do try and keep uh keep a hold of our you know like just oh my god tendencies but like the score for this movie absolutely rips <laughs> like and this is a movie that was made mostly by non-professionals uh, it was made for like i think what two three hundred thousand dollars um yeah uh and it's 
it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Um, uh, by Fred Myro, who also did the soundtrack for Soylent Green, I believe. Sick. Uh, it's what is there? Do you have like a favorite bit? I mean, really, really the whole thing. Like one of the things that really struck me while while watching this movie was that I could just listen to this score. Like yeah, it's. There's a very rare instance where the score of a film is something that I would want to just put on anyway. Halloween, like, is another. I, this is this just sounds like Carpenter music, you know, like, I, yeah, and not just was, a cheap clone. I was thinking, I was thinking about Carpenter. I was thinking also about like um, the score to some Dario Argento movies. Yeah, mm-hmm. like the, this is Giallo. Yeah, it's so perfectly of its time, but mm-hmm. it has this. Uh, I mean, let's let's be honest. If you if you want to know what the best or the kind of like most high quality bit of the movie is, yeah, it's probably the score. Let's be real. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, okay. So like, score score aside for a second, I do think that there was a lot in this movie that's like the, the reputation of Phantasm as a cult classic. I feel is a little misleading because usually when we say cult classic, we mean die you zombie bastards. Right, a movie that is both not well known and is like very clearly put together by people without access to a lot of money and a lot of like Hollywood machinery and talent, right? But there's some stuff in Phantasm that like really, really, really pushes the envelope. Stuff that's really interesting, shots that are honestly bold and innovative. I mean, like, it, it, by volume, this movie is mostly goofy as hell, but there is stuff in here that I really enjoyed. No, I, I agree. And I think it's important to point out that there's there's a lot in here which is um, shows, like, huge amounts of potential, and there's some super interesting ideas. But this is, by any metric, this is not a kind of, like... Um, <laughs> this is not what we consider, like, a kind of normatively well-structured well-constructed material object the re- the reason this has its kind of reputation of being a cult classic which i think is i think is relatively i like that you said die you zombie bastards is your version of a cult classic which is like <laughs> uh it like fractionally well known as in comparison to something like phantasm i think i think that's great <laughs> But yeah, like the reason this has such a kind of like weird cuts is like the editing took like a year um, and cut huge amounts of the runtime down because it's just 90 minutes. It's only just 90 minutes long. Um, so like it, it, it is good, but mm-hmm. I don't know whether you can say that happened. There's a kind of like happy accident that it is what it is. I... I definitely agree. I, this this is a movie that, much much like Star Wars, was made in the editing and saved in the editing. Yeah, you know, 100%. like I, I I can see how the footage shot could have been stitched together into a much more boring film about a spooky grave robbing giant and and his little zombie minions. Yeah, apparently but, the f- uh, the first test screening was like really badly received because it was way too long. Um, and then Coscarelli <laughs> cut vast chunks out of the movie. Release um, the Coscarelli cut. <laughs> so actually, this brings up a really interesting point, which is like, this film is often described as having like a dreamlike structure or being, you know, it's it's not 
necessarily all that coherent in the manner that we'd expect film to to, to function. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I guess I wanted to kind of pick, pick that apart a little bit and try and dig into what is it that, what does it mean for a film to be quote unquote dreamlike? So this, this I think is really interesting, right? Because ready points of comparison within the horror genre would be the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, the work of David Lynch. Mm-hmm. We, we, do, we do have a lot of horror cinema that is very interested in the dreamscape. Yeah. And I think, I think what makes it work here is dreams. And I mean, like we can have fun with this too. Like dreams, dreams are almost like anti-agential in a way, right? They're subconscious products. Your, your, your dreams are outside of your own volition, even though there's something produced by your body, right? They're this emergent property of consciousness or a meta property, if you will. And that, that is entirely reflected in this movie because the kind of the final emergence of phantasm is, is in very meaningful ways disconnected from the uh, like raw material bits of phantasm, right? It's its own emergent property of itself. And this is true, I guess, of all all cinema, but you really feel it when you watch Phantasm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's... So, like, obviously we know cinema is not real, but it has a kind of... Um, there's the distinction, of course, between the real and realistic, and there is a sort of cinematic language that is mostly about where the cut happens that is what we is where we as viewers construct our vision of like what the film narrative is and and its degree of coherence and mostly because the editing is so oh. Oh, yeah. So, sorry about that. Sorry about that, everyone. Um, I, I was just body snatched by, by a tall man uh, like, who was going like to send a, me... Like a dream. This podcast really only makes sense <laughs> when you stop listening to it. Uh, so it's po- podcasting dream logic, you know? Yeah, that, that's... that's uh, and it's, you know, it's where the cuts are. It's where the little musical stings come that you maybe weren't expecting. I guess, really, that was the point that I was trying to make, that, like, it's... Dream logic is constructed on the kind of micro level of the shot to shot transition, not the sequence to sequence. Because really, on a, on the level of plot, the film is it's kind of straightforward. Um, yeah, but it's in the it's it's the construction of it. Um, and I think if we're going to talk about dreams, we have to talk about the flip side of this. We have to talk about nightmares as well. Yes, we absolutely do. Because uh, the nightmare is a big, important kind of hinge to the very ending of the movie. Um, And you made a point in the notes that I thought was really interesting to connect it to minds as well. Yeah, and this is, I think, going to be one of those moments where the formalism zone and the discourse zone have their own dream logic overlap. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so at the the end, (laughs) there there are... And I want to talk about the length of this movie in a second because this this is 90 minutes by way of five hours. Um, <laughs> I don't think it drags though. I don't think it drags no, at it, all. It, 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 I guess, I guess, like really, really quickly to to take us into like the discursive sub basement here. Like the the thing for this movie for me, where I kept feeling as if the movie just restarted, was because the movie keeps doing things that you usually do in the first ten minutes. Yes, like like we're we're introducing kind of like new characters that should have been introduced right at the beginning of the film. Our our two protagonists, I guess, have girlfriends. That were never brought up, except for right here at the end of, of the movie. There's also a maid in the house. 
that you see for like I swear to God five seconds Wait, on screen. Really? Really? Look, yeah. Look, did, did we did we watch a different version? Maybe. <laughs> that, yeah. But I mean, in fairness, that's a distinct possibility. <laughs> But but there but there there are there are moments like that in Phantasm. Given the version that I watched was ninety three minutes long, so maybe that three minutes was the bonus footage. But there are so many little things in this movie that kind of just happen. Like like when they send Mike to go stay at the and stay at the late night antique store. Yes, such with the girlfriends. Such a deeply weird moment. <laughs> that's just that's just you know like that's just you know small town Americana. How many of us haven't? Whittled away the midnight hour at the antique store. Haven't been to the late night antique store. That's yeah. Everybody does that. I I made no sense of that. But anyway, like like this movie is it's it's by constantly temporally resetting us by doing the things that movies usually do in the first ten minutes. We 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 keep getting like ripped back in time. Like it's not letting you progress forward temporally, mm. which I think like, like ties into this nightmare logic stuff. Right. Because like, is that, that's like a classic nightmare formula. You keep awakening to the nightmare. You keep reawakening to the dream. And at the end of the movie, like is, so, so they have the big climactic battle where Reggie, Jody and Mike defeat the tall man and his army of, of little zombie minions. And, and, a la the end of Rocky Horror Picture Show, they like warp the spaceship morgue mansion into a different dimension or something that happens in two seconds. So you really can't say. Um, uh, yes. But, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, that's what's the movie we're dealing with today. But but after that, we have like this denouement where we like. the the, the I guess that didn't kill the tall man warping him into a different dimension. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah as as happens and they have to kill him again by like and, J- and jody is like uh uh you you my 13 year old kid brother load all the guns in the house and get ready to do some killing i'm i'm gonna drive up to the old mine and take away all the safety signs yep and i'm like why would you need to get rid of the safety signs and so, then they go so to he the- doesn't know that it's there obviously it's so obvious when you when you think about it and then so, so so like like the tall man is chasing Mike to, to, to the mines, right? This 13 year old boy. And then he jumps over a punji pit and the tall man falls into it. And like the thing about that is, is he would have had to have known ahead of time that that pit was there in order for him to avoid it and trap the tall man. They never discussed that in the movie. This means that Mike and Jody have a standing plan to kill a man with a pit down at the local mine. That well, is thoroughly discussed and rehearsed. Well, that there is there is a there is a very final final denouement which complicates this even further, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, which is what happened to Jody? Mm, because dun, the, dun, dun. the very the very heavy and I think probably uh, correct reading of the film is that Jody is is and has always been dead in the same accident that killed off their parents uh maybe (laughs) maybe it's not clear but this would explain how how he knows to do this without there being any kind of like advanced conversation about it and what i mean like i I think another way to approach this too is like we're, we're we're doing we're doing something we don't often do on the show which is like Ding, we're, we're, plot ding. Hole. I was I was gonna say ding <laughs> plot hole. 
but it's in, the, in this one it's just so baffling that i can't look away from the plot hole anyway um I think another like angle to approach the kind of recursive nightmare that we enter into in Phantasm is through the kind of like nightmare inversion of of the Americana dreamscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like Mike and Jody live the the kind of nightmare inversion of a, the picturesque American dream. Right. Instead of instead of uh, husband and wife, two point five kids in a house, they are just the two point five kids in a house. Right. They lack yeah. the parental overstructure necessary to to make that thing stable. Also, like part of the classic American dream is you have an amazing car that can take you wherever you need to go. And the car in this movie is a beautiful piece of machinery. Sure. But the thing is breaking down every other scene and it's getting outperformed by a hearse left and right. So we have like that being failed, a failed nightmare version. Also, guns are central to the American mythos. Right. Defending your home castle doctrine. Right. Like, like this is, this is standard, like European colonial fantasy shit. But in this one, like the guns don't, the guns don't work. You can't shoot these enemies, right? Like the guns offer you a like false vision of protection that wind up getting their friends killed. And so that's, and then we have like mining, right? Mining, we discuss on so many different episodes of the show, because for some reason, mines keep showing up in horror movies. I don't mm. know if there's something to pick at here, but that's yeah. beyond the scope of a left Dunno. politics show for sure. Dunno. Dunno. <laughs> um, Dunno what that but again, be about. <laughs> again, we, we've got the mine as the site of nightmare inversion, right? Like the 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 quintessential career for the hardworking bootstraps American in actuality just devours the souls of all who pass by it. And I mm. think like that, that's for me a way that towards the end of this movie, like that's just it's this recursive nightmare of Americana popping up over and over and over again. I mean, I think that's I think that's undeniably true. I think that's undeniably true, and it's what makes the film so um, psychoanalytically rich, um, because really, it's in many ways it's it's kind of a weirdly teenage movie, uh, mm. right? And I think maybe we can get into that when we start to kind of unpack some of its thematic and kind of discursive concerns but are there are there any more kind of like formal elements to it that you'd like to make sure we bring up uh yeah we need to talk about dune (laughs) yep yep uh this is this is my favorite dune movie yeah it's it's in the dune cinematic universe uh so okay so there is the the bar that they hang out at is called the dunes uh, cantina um, mm-hmm. And also, there is the litany against fear, and the Bene Gesserit yes. sisterhood are in this. Yes, they 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 do the Gom Jabbar. Like this is, I. So so in, in 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 at the start of the movie, near the start, Mike goes to an an old woman's house who's a psychic who has it who has like a teenage daughter who assists her in her psychic stuff. Yeah. And, and and it's presented Normal, in a way where I'm like so regular. That's just what every 13 year old in 1979 that's, did. <laughs> that's how I spent my teenage years. I, I don't. Maybe this is just an America thing. I was at the antique store till 3 a.m. I was visiting psychic grandmothers by noon. Like it's just it's just how we live. <laughs> no, no, no. I I completely get it. I completely get it. Yeah. Um. But like, it's shocking, shocking how not far off from my formative years this actually is. But. Um, <laughs> Like, so, so for me, I thought that setup was like, oh, this is going to be his love interest, right? This is the teenage girl that 
he's going to save at the end of the film to complete his own cycle of growing out of his juvenilia, right? He saves the girl, gets the girl, you know, consummates with a kiss. It's a very like yeah, cis yeah. heteronormative thing. Yeah. Um, uh, no, because she's she's a wizard psychic who works for an old woman wizard psychic, and they have the same face tattoo, just in different <laughs> positions. Which which leads me to intertwine them. So I I don't even think they're different characters. I I, th I think the the one of them is like a psychic manifestation of the other. Anyway, uh, they 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 just they just do a little Dune cosplay, and then and then the psychic teenager goes to the evil mortuary and disappears in a blinding flash of light that's never explained or addressed or dealt with uh yep this is true um I, and and really let's 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 be honest if you accept that dune is about um a suddenly orphaned child doing vast so much space cocaine <laughs> they become uh, a religious warrior um then then yes, Phantasm is in the Dune universe. Phantasm is an unauthorized uh, addition to the work of Frank Herbert. Yes, I I one hundred percent accept this. I was honestly waiting for Mike to do a bunch of drugs in this movie, or to be drugged by the tall man or something. And I guess I guess replacing people's blood with like a yellow liquid, kind of like the the embalming liquid or whatever, kind of fits into this weird necro Dune that we're doing here. But I just like the the and, and I wonder I wonder too if in a longer cut of this movie or a vision of this movie that had way more funding because we do we do go to Arrakis for like two two and a half minutes in this film you know oh, we go yeah, we go yeah, to the like uh, via portal as well he becomes a navigator yeah he, he yeah. folds space and time and sees the phantasm homeworld exactly and and it's got like a lot of those like sun scorched desert qualities that I would associate with Arrakis. It's got a weird political setup. Um, so, so there are like weird similarities to this, which I, I, I just, it adds to the kind of like, cause there's something, there's something dreamlike or maybe nightmarish about that. Right. Because in every dream you can always tease out the like, Oh, okay. I was watching Dune earlier yeah. that day. So that's, that's where the, <laughs> the Dune elements come in. And so like, it's got the kind of like, Every good nightmare needs to have that little thread of grounding taking you back to reality. So it's not just a slew of images and sounds. Like it needs that like the 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 grounding wire, right? And and in and in for some reason unknown to man or god, in in Phantasm, that's Dune. Yeah. Uh I so it's uh really I do think that's the 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 anchor that holds the whole thing together. Um and I think as we we exit the formalism zone, zone more seventy style synth music to go here. Um, as we as we exit the formalism zone and <laughs> enter enter the mausoleum of discourse, um, we should point out that um, if you, I no, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do a Dune bit when I talk about <laughs> going to horrorvanguard.com. To support the show, um, oh. you know, if you would like to help sustain the embalmed bodies of your podcasting hosts, uh, <laughs> please do, please do support the show. Um, recently, we just crossed nine hundred thousand listens, which Can is you believe it, unbelievable. I fully expect that we're going to hit a million listens this year. Um, if you would like to support that, it takes a lot of work behind the scenes. It takes a lot of time. Your money really does uh, help us keep doing this and help us make it better. Um, 
patreon.com slash horror vanguard you get early access you get the discord server you get a whole bunch of other fun stuff that we do just for supporters um yeah it, it to to sincere to be sincere on main for a second uh it is kind of amazing that this weird little show uh <laughs> gets you know thousands of listeners every week closing in on a million total listeners um and yeah we would really appreciate your support and your uh backing to help us keep doing what we do and you know you know to to, to dovetail this nicely uh if you're looking for something that isn't a mind killer, I also recommend the Licrit Guys Patreon as well as some new new endeavors that you've been starting recently. Uh, yes, there is a Substack. If you like, um, if you like music reviews, if you like, um, well, basically, I've built up an archive of probably hundreds of thousands of words worth of writing, which is what Substack Substack is going to be for. Um, but that is also going to be something that people can pay to access. Uh, that is thehaunt.substack.com. Um, and yeah, there's there's patreon.com as well for supporting, you know, literature and criticism in, in all of its forms. The rates are very reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> and best of all, you're never transported to a desert planet without your consent. That's my favorite thing about your substack. That yeah, that's 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 something that that is that something that uh, supporters of Horror Vanguard get. That is also something that subscribers to the Horn get. <laughs> you do not get uh, forcibly transported to the Red Planet and made to work in the spice mines. <laughs> <laughs> but links to our Patreon, as always, and links to John's new Substack will be down in the show notes, as well as our socials. You can now find Horror Vanguard on Bluesky. That's Blue Sky, if you don't want to pronounce it cool. Um, <laughs> where where I plan on being fairly active. So if you're over on that social media site, uh, as as Twitter now X burns burns as a tire fire eternal. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Some fun, fun, exciting things happening throughout the world. And speaking of fun, exciting things, let's talk about masculinity and grief. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this... Uh, waka waka. <laughs> waka waka. Uh, basically, uh, the boys are n- not okay, um, is the message of this film. Uh, so... Deeply. Deeply, un- deeply un-okay. Uh, but if you'd like a... Uh, so so the, the implication is that the parents are gone. Mike has his older brother. Um... Mike has his best friend, the 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 bald man with the amazing nineteen seventies ponytail, mm-hmm. <laughs> who it's it's just such a period perfect haircut, and I love it so. Much. I was I was so expecting. So Reggie Reggie has a, a very a receding hairline that's that's very substantially receding with a ponytail, right? And that is that is the haircut of guys in movies who are waiting for the rival dojo leader to show up and yes. cause trouble <laughs> at their karate establishment. Yes. 100, when when it is 100%. revealed when it is revealed that Mike and Reggie are not only in a CCR cover band yeah, it, but it that Reggie is an ice cream band. man? Yes. <laughs> I am I was unprepared on every level of unpreparedness for how that. does a film this short have so many amazing details in it there's there, there's literally a jam band segment that not only it's not and like like 
I, I know I know what you're thinking out there in listener land right now because this is one of those B horror movies. You put in the jam band jam jam segment because you need that runtime to hit 90 minutes for distribution. Yeah, yeah. So you yeah. put in the five minutes, but no, this is character building for Reggie because Reggie knows how to operate the interdimensional tuning fork because he used a tuning fork in the jam session. Yeah. <laughs> Although I don't think the tuning fork bit was displayed in the original jam section jam session footage. I think it was cut out of that. Yeah, and but then, then nevertheless, back in in the edit, I think. Um, <laughs> but oh my god, what an what an amazing what an amazing movie this is! This movie rules, <laughs> and I, I think I think Reggie is a great way to discuss the like complicated intersections of masculinities and grief that we're kind of seeing in this film. Yeah, okay, because so- a lot of the stuff. Well, I, I would just want to say quickly that like a lot of the stuff between Mike and Jody that we can definitely pick apart is very like pained and struggling, and masculinity is clearly an ankle weight on their ability to handle the death of their parents. But then at the end of the movie, like when Mike is dead, like Reggie or no, sorry, Jody is dead and and Mike is consoling Reggie or no, I'm sorry. The other way around Reggie, Reggie ponytail is consoling Mike, the 13 year old. And Reggie is like, I know I can never replace your older brother, Jody, but God damn it. I'm going to try. I'm going to take care of you now. Let's go on a vacation. And it's the most like, it's, it's the most like moving. masculine support moving like like I'm not I'm not the stepdad I'm the dad who stepped up t-shirt <laughs> goes to Jody like like this it was it was so it was like at the end I'm like tearing up a little bit and I'm like I, why the fuck am I crying at the end of Fantasm? I genuinely believe that um uh you know edgy 14 year olds need to stop listening to Andrew Tate and get super into the Phantasm franchise Oh no! Abs, absolutely, you got to get in touch with your inner Reggie. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, alpha, beta, sigma, out. We're 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 talking. You're either you're either a Jody male or you're a Reggie male. <laughs> F- fans of the Pokemon too, Reggie Gigas. There yeah, we go. Yeah, now absolutely. now we make a random gaming reference. Um, we're slowly just turning into Agab. That's all that's happening here. Th- we're slowly this becoming is, a gamer th- podcast. Again, again, this is a weird signal fan podcast. This is an Agab fan podcast. And people just need to be okay with that. We're just we're just doing we're just doing like what if someone tried to cosplay the host of Weird Signal and do the content of Agab? That's all horror <laughs> vanguard really is when that's you break it are. down. That's what we are. And and you know what? We're okay with that. We're okay with that. No, I made peace with that such a long time ago. <laughs> Literally years ago, years before Agab started. Agab was. Peace with that. <laughs> I was going to say, years, years before AGAB was even a thing, I was at peace with being an AGAB podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but but no, I, I, I couldn't agree. I could not agree more. And this is, uh, beneath the weirdness, This this there is a kind of genuine, like, emotional thread here of, you know, uh, Jody, is, Jody is kind of struggling to stay at home, uh, is well aware that his, he is not kind of emotionally or probably financially equipped to take care of a 13 year old um there doesn't seem to be a huge social support network available to them uh and yeah honestly that final scene is is exactly the one that i wanted to talk about because like you know we've had Mm -hmm. some laughs today but like in in all in all seriousness (laughs) that the the ending is like kind of deeply sincere um oh yeah before our the well, I, inevitable late seventies horror movie jump scare right at the close, but like, uh, you know, there there is a kind of real emotional s- seriousness to trying to deal with 
how would a 13 year old uh you know gen xer deal with kind of the the trauma and grief and i i think that that is a kind of real part of this film that maybe gets glossed over in the sort of weirdness and the slight goofiness and maybe the bits that are not all that sophisticated well i was, I was gonna say like i the, if, if this movie is goofy it's only goofy in the fact that it oh, it was using non-actors the director was also the cinematographer and the editor, right? Like this is this is your classic B movie situation where you don't have enough money nor do you have enough talent, so everyone does what they can. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, and again, I mean talent here in like the industry sense, and not as in these people aren't talented because like the uh, Baldwin, the actor who plays thirteen year old Mike, kills it in this movie. He is so good mm-hmm. as an actor on screen, especially for a child actor. Like he's he's lapping some of the grown adults that are acting in this film, and it's just like magnifique, brava. But like, let's let's talk about the politics of death and dying for a second. So, like, this is something the director kind of talks about, which is like American attitudes towards death are quite s- strange. Mm-hmm. Um, and really only in the last kind of 20 or 30 years has there been an interest in kind of what they call death studies or the concept of like the yes. good the good death or, or die, dying well um and death is it is it's an extremely private and privatized moment in in kind of human existence um it's it's not i don't i don't i don't want to generalize but quite a lot of the time it is not communal anymore um, no not not at all uh so i i i recently read i recently read this genuinely mind-blowing story um uh it's a kind of bit of reportage on the village which is like this enormous florida retirement community oh god um and it's like one of the biggest things that happens if you move there is you end up dying alone because mm-hmm. the village is enormously expensive it promises you kind of like your old age can essentially be a kind of perpetual teenage adolescence. Um, but like healthcare in the States is super expensive and it will eat through whatever money that you have. Uh, and you will end up dying alone in this vast kind of swamp of like identikit suburbia that's been custom built for people who are elderly. Um, and it's, it's one of the most chilling things I've ever read. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think the the politics of death and how we treat, particularly how we treat um, the elderly and the the elderly who are seriously ill. So the idea of like palliative healthcare, um, I think, are increasingly things that we will have to talk about, given that globally we know we have an aging population, mm-hmm. and it, as kind of like the uh, the crises of capitalism get more uh, unavoidably apparent. Actually, Alain Badieu had a good thing about this, which is like the old no longer have a kind of place of respect. You know, yes, it used to be that like absolutely to be elderly was to be seen as a figure of wisdom. Like it was your job to pass on the knowledge you've accumulated, um, and and kind of like be treated with the dignity that you've accrued through through your life. But that's no longer the case. Uh, mm-hmm. And and the flip side of that is like the young don't necessarily have ways of kind of coming of age and becoming kind of like mature, you know, you get a kind of prolonged hyper adolescence until suddenly you're thrust into this idea of like, you have to work, 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 because 
that's that's where you live. So he suggests that there should be a kind of like communist uh, alliance between both the old and the very young, because both of these groups of people have been fundamentally kind of just exploited and left uh, by the forces of global capital. Like you, you are absolutely right. We are, we are. I know so few people who own homes. I know so few people who have children. I know so few people who uh, have paid off a car. You know, like these things that in in the American sense were signifiers of you are now an adult. Or be- better yet, anyone who's got like a lifelong career that they feel comfortable and settled into, something, a craft that they'll be honing for the rest of their days. Like these, these signifiers of adulthood are shut down by capitalistic modes of production, sites of extract. And we see that so, so clearly happening in the discourse of this film, Re-Age. Like, I think you're entirely correct about that. Yeah, and it's like also there's this huge kind of generational um, cultural fear of aging. Um, you know, the the body becomes... A, uh, if, if your body is a commodity, it suddenly becomes something that you're supposed to invest in. And the yeah. thing that you are investing to offset is time, right? Because really the limit of capitalism is death, right? Mm-hmm. You can no longer accumulate. You can no longer spend. You are no longer uh, a an, an asset in the long term. And I, I, I do think, and again, like there are all kinds of, uh, the, there are all kinds of things about like um, reactionary discourses tapped up and tied up in this notion of like the purity of the body and the body not being, something that you should change or interfere with. I think that's that's not not at all what I'm trying to get at, but this idea of like the very basic nature of our contingency and and not just our contingency but our finitude being something that we are supposed to completely resist strikes me as antithetical to actually I don't know. There there seems to be something that I kind of struggle with in that, you know, this idea of like resenting our own finitude. There's this great old clip of um, the philosopher Paul Ricoeur talking about, you know, what are the advantages of getting older? And he says, like, one of the first advantages is you become much more okay with the fact that there's certainly, there are going to be people that just don't like you. Mm -hmm. And you'll stop worrying about that. But also, if you accept your own contingency, you accept your own finitude, you have moments. And I I think people who reconcile themselves to aging recognize this. You have moments where you kind of, you experience infinity in the present, right? Yes. You, you know, where you have the moment of being able to look back or look forward and regard yourself as this, not this kind of static object, but as this, um, almost this kind of like palimpsest, this thing which has been written and created and this marvelous thing that could like become something else in the future. And I think that, that's quite a liberating thing. I, I, I kind of wish that we had more, the politics of aging and the politics of death are very kind of present in this film. Oh, oh, completely, completely. And I think a, a thing I would tease out of this as well is we can't, we can, we kind of can't talk about the capitalistic orientation towards aging without talking about ableism. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because, because so many of the things that we treat as markers of age are in actuality markers of ability. And, and we, there's a direct through line between how we treat the elderly under capital and how we treat people whose bodies exist outside of whatever capitalism is currently deeming as the most extractable sites of flesh. Yeah, I mean, most- this is this is why that, uh, you know, the, the, the alliance between the young and the old has to include 
you know the the non-conforming the body the body that does not fit within the re- mm-hmm. the current the current regime of of uh, capitalist extractivism um and it and i also think something that th- this film brings up very well is the idea of memorialization yes um and what does it mean to be so what does it mean to be the remains of something mm-hmm. um you know because a lot of this happens at the morning side uh uh crypt cemetery mausoleum uh, all of the above <laughs> And I think memorialization is something that is super important in lots of ways. But again, it's this kind mm-hmm. of privatized thing. Um, you know, uh, there's the memento mori, the the skeleton that says, ju- uh, "Just, just as what is it? Just as, uh, just as you are, so uh, just as I was, just as I am, so shall you be." Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of like actually. Um, you know, we have to. I think memorialization is 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 a very interesting thing. It's like, where are their parents? And they go, oh well, they're in Morningside Cemetery. And it's like, well, is that them, or is yeah. that is that what remains of them? Um, a- absolutely. So, and I think that's tied up in this as well, right? This idea of like, what does it mean to to have a collective memory of those that we've lost, or those that are no longer here? Um, yeah, we, we see this we see this directly in in the context of the film, right? We we currently live under a capitalistic sense of memorializing our dead, right? Like the way you phrased it, I think is spot on. Where are their parents? Their parents are in the cemetery, right? Because the the, the kind of we we trace the value of their parents based on the kind of extractive approach to their bodies, and so their their last site of value holding is in the grave, the plot on the grave that they own, which you can sell down the road in the future if you need the cash. You know, so so we link it to that. We trace it there. We don't talk about like alternative approaches to this that we see in other culture, like deceased parents are located in the heart, right? Like they're located in us, their offspring, whether that's literal or being raised by them, right? We see ourselves like the. It, it strikes me how, <laughs> oh my god, I can't believe I'm saying this. It strikes me how well Phantasm is able to articulate the true depth and pain of alienation. Uh, thank you, Coscarelli, director of the Beastmaster, for for yeah, your mean, true we, Marxist sight. Yeah. Do we do we do we have do we have the means to properly mourn? There's there's the moment where Mike goes and finds a coffin, right? And he opens it, and it's like it, I think it's his dad's coffin or his mom's coffin. Mm-hmm. It's like. The, and you're never shown what's in there, right? Which I think is a really important idea because in so many ways, this film is about like a 13-year-old trying to reconcile themselves to the fact of death, which, yeah. is, which is a genuinely terrifying thing, right? This, the, first, the first kind of, it's almost like the forbidden knowledge when you're a, uh, when you're a kid, this idea that like sometimes you can just end you could just go you could just not be here anymore and it's like it's the big kind of existential horror so it's like this is which is why it's so important that the tall man is a is a embalmist is a is a you know works in a mortuary because it's like what do they do to the body and in what sense have they changed the body from being a person or a subject into being the remains of a person 
Mm-hmm. And, and this gets even just all the more interesting when we start to look at the history of embalming and the purpose of embalming. Mm-hmm. Embalming being invented during the American Civil War as a way to allow grieving relatives not on the battlefront to to mourn the bodies of their fallen by the time they arrived back home, which under the technological conditions available in that particular historical moment would have been decayed as fuck is the technical term. And like we, we see this carrying over today where we've lost the kind of like historical impetus, right? Like rare is the occasion you have to like cart someone's corpse for months across the blazing hot American landscape. Yeah. Like, and, and, and this is also connected to things like Victorian death photography, right? Yes. So mm-hmm. you would have like the, the, you would have the memory of the person that they were because, uh, you know, as I, this is something I, I feel like um, Walter Benjamin is quite good, good at kind of teasing out. And it's mostly because I think he's quite a religious thinker, which is like, there is a responsibility, not just to the future, but to everything that's gone before you. Like, and that's mm-hmm. a, that's a political respo- responsibility. So it's like, it isn't just grief is not simply a, um, a kind of like subjective emotion, um, but is a, there is a sort of political aspect to it. And there's this kind of leftist imperative of like, don't mourn, organize, but it's like, actually, Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of feel like you have to do both. There has to be a moment where you recognize the enormity of the problem in front of you. And that's kind of what mourning is on a, on a psychoanalytical level. Right. It's recognizing the extent of your loss. Um, that's what the morning, pre- like Freud writes about this actually quite movingly. I think this idea that like if you don't recognize what you what it is that you don't have anymore, that you know, as he puts it, the kind of lost object object of love, you you have nothing, no no chance of kind of moving forward. So I, I and you know that's why it's important that you have this. Like Mike is a thirteen-year-old who literally has to fight the embodiment of death, right? Mm-hmm. I, and that's a that's that's a mourning process. That's the that's the process of mourning, and it's only once you've done that that you can kind of even start to think about moving forward. Absolutely, go figure. Go figure. You and I would have spent the bulk of the discourse zone of today's episode talking about mourning and death. What are the odds? Um, should we should we talk about gun culture though? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but before we get into gun culture though, I do want to talk about one of the weirder things that this movie does, which says a lot. Yes, and that's the lady in lavender. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we just had, uh, I think, a deeply sincere kind of conversation trying to tease out the politics of death. Now let's talk about uh, sex in a graveyard. <laughs> And, and even, even this, I think, is is so moving in the context of the film in such a weird way, right? Because, like, again, Mike is a 13-year-old, right? Right on the cusp of puberty, exiting childhood, entering into a future that will be defined by either reproductive or, like, necrologic capability, right? Like, that that is kind of the one of the problems of adulthood is that, like, you're kind of on the you're you're on the knife's edge of reproducing or dying. You know, like those are the two primary discourses that you must resolve as you escape the vector of your childhood. And like, so sex in the graveyard, I think is entirely appropriate, right? Like it's, it's both ends, you know, of, of existence happening in the same space. Yeah. I mean, and it's, I also, it's the, it's both drives, isn't it? Like Freud. Yeah. Just yeah. Like, yeah. Obviously. Yo, duh, duh. Of course people are fucking in the graveyard. Duh. Um, 
but like i think I, I think beyond that what i find to be really interesting is that the lady in lavender is the tall man the the i w- whatever one of them is the originating form if either of them are the tall man is capable of shape-shifting into the form of the lady in lavender to lure these men to the graveyard to get more zombie minions to send back to arrakis um <laughs> And what I, what I find to be discursively interesting about that is so much of this movie is about masculine approaches to grieving loss and death and kind of what's happening in the context of this film is it it's taking that like necessarily like, you know, like if we want to continue down a Freudian path, this like feminine energy, or if we want to take this, you know, and maybe I guess like a Marxist materialist sense, right? Like we're looking at gender divisions of labor and grieving. You know, and it's and it's taking this presence of the feminism, whether we're looking at that psychoanalytically or we're looking at that from more of a Sylvia Federici perspective. But like that is the bridge that's being made to get these guys to confront death. It's taking that like countervailing force. I mean, this this movie has no right to be nearly as thought provoking as it is. I mean, like the opening is a classic kind of 70s um, horror movie moment of the sex in the graveyard and, you know. Uh, it's all very kind of like uh, sort of softcore erotica. But it's like, no, yes, these two things are intimately bound up with one another. Le, la petite mort, as, yes. as, as yes. they call it. What is, what, is, what, is the, what is the orgasm? What is sex if not... Like, uh, something, something Terry Eagleton writes about is this idea of like sex and religion are two things which take us out of ourselves, right? They mm-hmm. and they are about kind of going beyond the limits of the kind of singular subject, um, and it's like it, it, death is it, our finitude is kind of like the base condition of what it means to be a subject to have an awareness of your own finitude. This is like something Heidegger says in a in a public lecture, and is a tedious old Nazi in lots of ways. But like, uh, <laughs> I, but this you know he was asked what would you advise people do? And he said, spend more time in graveyards. Mm -hmm. And if you tell people to spend more time in graveyards, what are they going to do that? They're going to fuck there, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. So with that, with that aside, we can finally move on to point two in the discourse. So (laughs) yeah, uh, let's give 13 year olds who are recovering from the loss of their parents access to shotguns. (laughs) That's, that seems to be the moral of this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cue cue eagles and fireworks, and I'm proud to be an American, and all all of all of that shebang. Well, as someone who is not an American, I have to ask you. <laughs> I have to because this is completely this is completely alien to me. Obviously, I I need you to kind of explain the role of guns in Phantasm. So the first thing that I find to be interesting is Phantasm does have like a quick, effective primer on safe firearm handling. Mm-hmm. When when Jody, so like a- after what is an incredibly unsafe depiction of firearm handling. Yes. So so the, I, I think one of the first guns we get introduced to in the movie is after Mike has escaped the tall man. Um, we 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 see Mike asleep on the staircase, clutching clutching a pump action shotgun. And then, like, Jody walks over, calmly extracts the weapon from the child. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and then, like, <clears throat> you know, like, it j- j- just j- just kind of, like, casually unloads it and then casually just holds it about. And I'm like, that 
that seems to be a very chill approach to a 13 year old boy found sleeping on staircase with shotgun <laughs> but imme- immediately after that we do we do get like a good a good primer on safe gun handling from jody where he's like never pointed at anything you don't want to shoot never shoot at anything you don't want to kill and do not do warning shots for self-defense warning shots are useless and those are like three good general firearm safety tips you know, like you, you do never want to you just point the gun at something you don't want the gun to be pointed at. That's great. Thanks. Thanks, Jody. And so it's, it's, it's like bizarre to me that the movie takes a break to give us a safe gun handling seminar, which is just one of the things you'll get when you go to Phantasm. <laughs> are, you, are you having trouble dealing with like gender and grief? Maybe you have uh, thoughts about Dune you haven't worked out. Are you considering getting into like marksmanship? phantasm has you covered yeah absolutely um yeah yeah this idea of like shoot to kill or don't shoot at all i believe is the line yes that is uh and i'm like damn (laughs) uh again it's such a it is such an alien thing though it's such an alien thing it's not at all part of like youth culture in the uk so it's it's always sort of surreal to get these insights into like contemporary america's attitude towards guns mm-hmm. yeah i i mean like i i we are going to spend an endless amount of time explaining american attitudes towards guns long into the future of humanity as, as long as any kind of academic apparatus exists, we'll be working to figure this one out. Yeah, and be like, were you guys okay? No, not at all. And, and Phantasm just plays a key part in this. But again, like one thing that I really find interesting about a lot of horror is is the gun can kind of be generally divided into two separate categories, two separate taxa within horror, right? You've got horror movies where the gun is imminently useful and the thing you absolutely need. You've got stuff like The Walking Dead, mm-hmm. where yeah. where it is 100% this kind of proto-fascistic, like, might makes right discourse that's going on there, right? Every If you've got enough guns, you are the winner. And yeah. then you've got stuff like Phantasm on the other side of this, where, like, the, the, the function of the gun here is kind of brought outside of the immediate mortality of its own context, right? You can't shoot the tall man in a way that's meaningful. You can't shoot any of his zombie minions in a way that's meaningful, right? The, it does less damage than a baseball bat would. Yeah. Um, but it is useful for, like, shooting <laughs> the scene. Mike Mike is in the kidnapped in the back of a hearse with the tall man driving it. And, and he shoots out the window and then from the inside of the hearse shoots out the tires so he can jump out the back. Yeah, don't don't like, think about it too much, everybody. It does. <laughs> it, that is a thing that happens. And, and, and but in again, like even in the context of Phantasm, I think this works, right? Because because the way the the movie treats Mike in relation to these weapons is that struggling liminal space between childhood and adulthood. He's simultaneously treated as a child because he can't. He he needs to be kept away from sites of violence. He needs to be kept away from these weapons. He needs to be lectured on their safe handling because we presume he doesn't know these things. But then also, like, he's, like, executing, like, Call of Duty cutscene gun maneuvers. <laughs> he, he's, like, a borderline gun kata guy during the movie. Yeah. So, like... Well, I, I actually think the way to think about this, again, is probably through Carol Clover's idea of the final girl. 
Ooh. Oh, okay. So let's let's get real gender wrecked right now because this this is going to be fun. Yeah. So like, what Clover says about the final girl is that they take on a weapon, right? They take on a, a weapon, and it's the kind of like usually the phallic signifier, and obviously uh, that that uh, doesn't necessarily apply in this case exclusively. But like, if you accept the gun as the phallic signifier that has to be taken on, what is its aim, right? The confrontation with death is the passage into adulthood, right? It's very telling that he's 13 years old, right? Obviously, uh, yes. in it, like his, confronta- his confrontation with the tall man is a kind of bar mitzvah, right? It's, it's the degree to which... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that actually got... I was taking a sip of water and that was, that was a legitimate spit take that I am not editing out of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and... I, I, and again, I, I, I kind of mean this sort of like semi-seriously, that it's a, like the whole point of the confrontation with death is about the becoming an adult, right? That's this this idea of like taking on the that, that sort of subject position. Um, and yeah, that's why I think it's probably important that it's a gun. Because yes. what, what else is the signifier of like adult responsibility in the American imagination, other than like you're willing to pick up the gun. I I think this is such a interesting fork to take down this discourse too. Look at using kind of the, this Clover's perspectives on the final girl to analyze Mike, and because another thing that like kept jumping out to me that was really weird in this movie, and I found out that Coscaselli's mother did the makeup, was that Jody, Mike, Reggie. These these adult cis presumably hetero men are all wearing like blue eyeshadow in yes. every other scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they don't they don't strike me as being like proto hair metal rocker dudes from the seventies for whom that kind of attire would have been appropriate. It just kind of like it, it reads as being like I, I think the reason it's there is because you had like just someone's mom do the stage makeup and not like a stage makeup artist, but like it does wind up adding a layer of complication to how we approach gender in this film. And I think rather than like queering the context of phantasm, I think it just puts the masculinities discourses that we have here in so much more stark relief. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Clover's argument is kind of like uh, this idea of like the, the final girl necessarily takes on a sort of masculinized subject position because that's, the way that you deal with violence Mm -hmm. and i think thus reading mike in those terms um absolutely raises these interesting questions right of like what is it in in so many ways it's like the film is trying to wrestle with the idea of like what is it what what does that that masculinized subject position actually mean in the context of a world in which death is both absolute and universal i i have an interesting question then so so then split across both Mike and Reggie, could we argue that they are final boys because they do both have to take on feminizing qualities in order to escape the tall man? Reggie's whole final monologue is all about how he, he is going to enter into this caring, supportive, loving parental role for Reggie. Yeah, precisely. Which, and uh, this 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 fucking movie. <laughs> Thanks, Phantasm, for allowing us to iterate on Carol Clover. I mean, obviously, obviously, the details are completely different. The details are completely different. Uh, yes, naturally. Stuff. 
but like structurally i think there's like a a, a kind of structural homology here there's a there is an there is a resonance that i think is worth drawing on this i need i need to go take a vacation in arrakis after <laughs> after we're done with this one i need I, did, I need a lot of spice and a lot of time in the desert just looking at worms so i oh, those are just brilliant points I, I i gotta say that was that was cooking in yeah. the horror vanguard tradition how, how do you uh, want to wrap this up because uh, there's the, you know Lord, we've been there's going a for lot. quite a while <laughs> an hour and and listeners we're halfway through our notes on phantasm <laughs> it's been an hour already i mean because we can talk about things like uh micah's voyeur and again this idea of like it's usually it's there's the bit that's weird is like him watching his older brother have sex yeah like that's the bit where you go again freud a kind of freudian route is really the only just way of sweating. reading this movie every every psychoanalyst is just sweating like a killer while watching this movie <laughs> inescapable it's inescapable but I, th- I think that's so appropriate too especially in the nightmare context too this this is his coming adult subconscious trying to reconcile the loss of his childhood right the thing that's dying in phantasm is is of course all of these people but also part of mike's quintessential existence he can never go back to being a child or having a child's perspective or having childish feelings you know that 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 is dying as as adult mike comes into life yeah, as I put it in the notes, it's like teenage scopophilia, right? He's mm-hmm. the the thirteen year old at, as in the Zizekian sense, the pervert, <laughs> right? It's it's not about it's not about his desire to look. It's his desire for the desire of the other, right? His older brother. Yeah. So again, it's absolutely it's kind of perfectly kind of straightforward in that sense. Yeah, yeah. He's he's not he's not watching for some kind of like base sexual gratification. He's he's watching to find answers to unanswerable questions about his own future. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And like, and again, like, you know, it's, it's the fear is the mind killer advice that he got at the start, right? That he, he keeps having to utter to himself throughout yeah, the don't movie. Be afraid. Right? Is, don't be afraid. Yeah. This is all him facing this fear of the inevitable progression of time and its consequences on his life. Uh, let's. Let's let's talk about orbs for a second as we start to unwind. Yeah, some excellent orbs in this in this movie. This is hey, if you're an orb guy, this is a good orb movie. <laughs> are, are we contemplating the orbs? I think we should. <laughs> just just here in the oh podcasting cave contemplating the orbs. I, yeah, I'm just what, so what happy about that there the, are orbs the, in this the, film. The tall man's the tall man's uh, we- weapon, I suppose. Sentient, sentient weapon, the orb. I so so one. It comes from like uh, Coscaselli had a nightmare that he was being chased down a hallway by a tall man who had a a, f- a flying orb drill that would core out his brain. So th- I mean that translates one to one into the movie pretty nicely. I got to say, um, <laughs> yeah, some good cinematic I, literalism. <laughs> <laughs> it's a realist movie when you break it down. It really it, oh, no, it is. It hundred percent is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the orbs I find to be really interesting, right? Is this kind of like de- deconstruction of, of of the weapon of the slasher? Because the, the the tall man embodies so many qualities of a good slasher killer: ominous, pseudo human, uh, uh, proportions beyond the real. There's so much I see in him that I see in Michael Myers and Freddy and Jason. 
he's he's got the quintessential qualities right and he is doing the slasher killer thing he is slashing and killing mm -hmm. his weapon of choice <clears throat> is a knife in addition to the classically phallic knife in addition to the bit more gender ambiguous orbs that he wields and like um sorry what was i saying lost my train of thought but i do think that's an interesting like shift in the kind of like driller killer situation that we're working with the tall man here like these pseudo sentient floating orbs that exsanguinate you so you can be turned into a dwarf zombie to be sent to arrakis yeah question mark <laughs> who who can say at this point who can say let's okay let's let's talk about the red planet let's talk about arrakis for a second here okay so in the mausoleum in in the in the in the cemetery they find the the this it, which is this incredibly sort of like pseudo modernist marble almost entirely marble environment they find mm -hmm. this room that's full of like um steel like tanks and there's a there's a weird portal that leads to this this other planet or this other space in which um the 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 minions of the tall man the 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 these are they cannibalistic these sort of uh, half seen, half glimpsed, very short henchmen are seen like stacking stuff and kind of carrying stuff away. Um, and there's some incredibly quick exposition where they go, "Oh, it's they're made, they're, they're slaves. Oh they're, they're, they've been enslaved." We we have to we we have to dwell on that exposition for a second because I'm afraid that when our listeners hear really quick, they won't hear how quick it actually is. Because Mike gets pulled back from the portal to Arrakis and he goes, they're shrinking people down into dwarf zombies to force them into slave labor on an alien planet through this interdimensional portal. And, every and, Reggie, and everyone else just goes, yep, that's exactly what's going on. <laughs> Reggie literally snaps his fingers and goes, yeah, that's it. That makes total sense. Let's roll. And, and that takes place in about 14 seconds. Uh, so how do we make sense of this? I, we don't. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> no, um, I, I, I find this, I mean, obviously, like, going back to the Precy, the thing that I find to be really interesting is, like, these corpse brokers literally lease body parts, mm -hmm. right? Like, and when I say lease, I mean lease. Like, you can lease an arm from a cadaver with the expectation that you will return that arm when you're done with it. I, I don't even know how that works. I don't even know how you could not you use the arm <laughs> in your research or whatever yeah what what, what, like, is, what is that what does that mean what does that what does that mean yeah vi violently shaking a corpse broker how do you lease an arm Explain. but i think i think like this is this is literalizing a lot of that process right like the the kind of they're referred to as dwarves in the movies these kind these kind of shrunken zombie men are like they're they're, they're incomplete people their brains have been taken out the brains get turned into the spheres like you know, we're like we we already have the body being like vivisected post death, and and sold off and utilized, right? Like we come to learn later in the franchise that there are multiple tall men and they're building an army and like you know they're they're selling them to these like alien overlords, and like oh my god, and then of course it's Arrakis, of course it's Dune, of course there's Dune stuff happening in the background. But I think for me, one of the things that really jumps out is Mike is talking about how hot the desert planet is. Yes. Yeah, right? yeah, and 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 it's got like for for some reason that they have to shrink people down because of the gravity and and the heat or something like that. Yes, he um, specifically mentions the gravity, 
which which to me like that that evokes a lot of like like our kind of like gothic environmentalist discourses right like in in his momentary glimpse of oh, what yeah. i will continue to refer to as arrakis we're just like I'm, I'm recording this in the middle of of another historic chicago heat wave until next week when there's a worse one also the air right now is unbreathable for quote-unquote sensitive groups and i've got a sneaking suspicion that like every time you hear the phrase sensitive groups it's almost everyone um and like I'm looking out a window right now to a world that feels way too close to that barren desert hellscape. Mm -hmm. And again, like what we're going to see is capitalism is going to force our bodies to change in order to work in these conditions. Yeah. The, you know, the huge amounts oh, of on. kind of like normalization, what, what like yep. this, this idea of like, well, you just have to be adaptable. So what if the spice mine doesn't have like breathable air Thanks to Amazon's new, <laughs> like you know. Well, I already. I was gonna say I already see the form of the discourse, right? Because we've all seen those, like whether you're on TikTok or Instagram or whatever, you've seen the memes where it's like, where it's like soft hands, brother, soft hands, you know. And like, sure, a lot of them are joking, but like the origins of a lot of those kind of like, I'm a tough working class blue collar man. I don't need girly things like the ability to use my lungs to their full capacity like we were already seeing the format of that discourse right it's going to be what five ten years from now and and some conservative pundit is going to be like be like oh you know uh zoomers zoomers today are so weak because back in my day we would cough up the red dust and not ask questions about it yeah uh, apparently apparently uh the variant the variant groups that work in the barium mines are demanding breathable <laughs> air now don't they know that someone has to pay for that at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. And even even if it's not that that extreme, we're going to enter into a world where, like, I don't know, something like asthma rates are going to skyrocket, and it's going to become a default condition. Yeah. And, like, it's, it's just going to become endemic, just like with COVID. It's just going to be this endemic thing that never goes away that we just deal with permanently. And here, here in fucking phantasm, they're, they're, they're like, have a taste of that nightmare. Just did a little sippy sip from your little sippy cup. Yeah, uh, you watch Phantasm, and in that 30-second bit of film, what you see is you see your future. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Like, we, we, have, we have the full spectrum of kind of like... But because, I, and, I, and I don't say this lightly, in, in the brief moment in the end where Reggie and Mike finally contact, like, make contact with each other over the death of Jody. And, and Reggie is like, hey, I've been a family friend for years. I'm going to step up. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to do my be as best as I can to be family for you. And, and, and Mike, for the first time in the movie, steps out of his own juvenile shell, right? He, mm. he, he's ready yeah. to be in the world again and, instead of being so withdrawn, instead of being withdrawn into his brother's shadow. And, and in that, like, you know, we can extrapolate left dialogues from that. That is that that is the the blossom of utopia shattering the concrete of the real. But on the other side, we've got the unkillable force of of capitalistic recuperation and the tall man turning us all into these shrunken zombie slaves. Yeah. yeah which way, Western man? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the emotional, oh the emotional God. vulnerability to to talk to those who have been through great loss and to transcend the bonds of biological family and to construct new units of care in which all can be sheltered and taken care of, or dying mm -hmm. in the spice mines on the phantasm planet. <laughs>
And that's really like, that's silly as hell, but that's literally how simple the, and, and this is one of the things that again, like to evoke the kind of like recursive nightmares in Phantasm, like it is that simple of a question. Do you want care and family and camaraderie and compassion or, or do you want to be turned into a demi-human minor? Like, that's that's really... It's fucking Morlocks all the way down with this shit lately. Like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, that's a future thing. There's a future thing for Morlocks. I just realized that we're, 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 we are... We, are uh, we exist atemporally here in the Horror Vanguard crypt, and sometimes the future is the past. Yeah, the future is... The future is now, friends... <laughs> to time time is convoluted heroes heroes from all ages walk the horror vanguard crypt <laughs> oh well well do you have anything else to say about the dark souls of horror cinema phantasm <laughs> uh, on this the the dark souls of horror cinema podcasts no no i don't think i do oh uh, what an amazing i was not expecting this to happen in this episode <laughs> So, okay, I guess the last thing I'm going to say is I, if I had seen Phantasm before this, it, it must have been when I was a teen and I've mostly forgotten it. I recognize scenes from the movie, but Phantasm is heavily clipped, heavily referenced, right? So, but this was my what I considered to be my first real viewing of the film. And I, I was like, oh, it's going to be like a goofy early 80s B-horror junk film with a cult following whatever there's a million of them <laughs> and you were like no that sounds good to me <laughs> by by the end of this like this is literally one of the best movies i've ever seen by by the end of this movie i was like i felt high out of my mind and i wasn't i was on the edge of my seat i was clawing the inside of my skull for understanding this is this is this is the like this is like a five hundred thousand dollar tin of horror movie caviar. Mm-hmm. This is this is this is this this is the spice, you know. Like I'm folding space and time trying to make sense of this. <laughs> like that is the kind of film we're dealing with today. Um, honestly, honestly, what fun! I, it's it's one of those great moments watching Phantasm. If you've never seen it, it's it's really easy to find. There's an Arrow video remaster, um, and again, shout out to the great people at Arrow um oh yeah and if you've never seen it um this is one of those moments where you kind of like you recognize what horror cinema can do on a, on the level of consciousness because everything we've said is true it is it is kind of cheesy and a little bit goofy and maybe the acting isn't great and the effects are kind of cheesy but like within it there are there is so much to kind of like nourish the soul i think i think that's a beautiful place to to close out this episode listeners if you've been if you've, if you've been kind of in your own mind on, on the on the arrakis of your own personal existence, join us on on the plane of phantasm <laughs> for some spiritual nourishment. Goodbye, everyone. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next week for another episode of Horror Vanguard. And uh, it's definitely not me picking another A24 movie. <laughs> We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.